to the North Group. Security, refined by intelligence. We're here to spotlight the best practices in critical safety and security issues in today's world and provide actionable strategies that you can implement into your day-to-day -day operations. From the individual to organizational level, our goal is to improve your risk management and response capabilities. Thanks for spending time with us today, and here's your host. Well, welcome to the podcast. This is Brig Barker. I'm the COO of the North Group, and with me is Steve Hernandez, the CEO. Uh, boy, today we've got a very interesting guest, uh, Dr. William Kyle Vincent. Uh, we're going to call him Dr. Kyle here. He's a medical doctor, and uh, Dr. Kyle is not only treating patients on a daily basis, but he's also taken the initiative to put out a regular COVID-19 update on Facebook. I follow him. It's very interesting. Um, but we're not just going to talk about COVID-19. Uh, we're going to actually look at it from a different angle. Dr. Kyle is going to take us deep into the physiology of the body during times of stress, absence of stress, and even panic. So uh, this is going to be a very interesting discussion. Uh, would you like to open us up, Steve? Doctor, thank you for joining us today. Um, looking back, can you, can you just start us off with um, – what, what it was like, you know, in medical school and did you feel like your career path would take the, the, the direction that it's taken and, and, and how did you uh, relate all of, you know, your training to, to what you're dealing with today? First of all, thank you guys for having me. Uh, such an honor to be part of a big group to contribute to y'all's podcast. I really appreciate what you all done, are doing, and, and thank you all for, for allowing me to be here. Uh, to answer your question, um, you know, the path of medical school is very uh, it's different for everybody, but it, it's definitely, I don't think any, anything like what you thought it was going to be. Um, it's not, you know, columns and just you show up and they just drop all this knowledge on you and you just soak in all the greatness kind of a, kind of a picture. At least that's what was in my mind. Um, it's just a lot of hard work. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time studying a number of different things, you know, your, your first two years of medical school, they call them basic science. And, and really it's everything from biochemistry to physiology, anatomy. And really it's just a lot of hard work, wake up, study, go to class, come back home, study, go to sleep, hope to get some sleep and then rinse and repeat and do it all over again. You know, um, <clears throat> I pretty much kind of lived my life three weeks at a time in medical school. Cause that's, we had a test every three weeks. So with that, um, it, it would, it, it helps me obviously now and, and how, uh, it prepared me, it allowed me to be well-versed in a number of different areas because of the intensity that I experienced, um, going through school and having to, to, to make the grade, um, in each and every class subject and, and block. Great. Thanks, Dr. Kyle. Very interesting. Uh, graduate of Morehouse college and also Wake Forest university. Uh, we're so glad to have you today. Um, we want to talk about specifically the physiology of stress or the absence of stress in the body. Um, but first, do you have any thoughts about where all this might be going with COVID-19? So in regards to COVID-19, as, as you watch the news on a daily basis, is an ever-evolving thing. You know, it's, it's a very fast-moving target, if you will, whether that's the date to return to social normalcy, the, the amount of testing that's going on, and, and the treatment protocols. Everything is very uh, up in the air, so to speak, right, as it pertains to COVID-19 right now. Um, we've done some things that have worked. We're doing some things that, that um, 
have have uh, had some success and some that, that have not, um, whether that's state to state comparison, county to county comparison in regards to what people are doing as a whole. Um, in regards to the stress levels of it all, there's a number of different ways to go about stress uh, in, in discussing this topic. One is the anatomy, physiological, uh, really it's a hormonal neurological response. And, and essentially what happens is your body, you, you might've heard the whole flight or flight response. You know, I know you guys, your, your, your group is well, well versed in putting themselves or being and being comfortable in stressful situations. And in that it requires you to process things very quickly. And, and with that processing, that requires blood flow, that requires heart rates to go up, that requires you know, certain senses to be higher or lower um, with all that. And, and in that uh, achieving those, that state, you, you put your body under a certain amount of just overall physiological stress. The mental stress with it is a, is a separate component because that's more of the emotional, mental side of the process, of processing of whatever stressful environment that you're in. So in regards of COVID-19, there's a number of different people that are experiencing stressful moments for very different reasons. And in those different reasons lies the, the, way, the best ways to approach taking yourself from a stressful situation and, uh, uh, and the removal of stress situation as well. Yeah, doctor, would you mind telling us a little bit more? I mean, you, you touched it briefly, but can you talk about the physiology of stress within our bodies mm -hmm. and how, you know, from from the start of an onset of an incident or a stressful situation, how different people deal with uh, the, the different effects of the stress, um, you know, from the, from the soldier to the police officer to the medical professional, uh, from your perspective, because I honestly think you guys deal with it better than we do in the military side, because uh, it's compounded in our life, but you're dealing with it every day. So, so I would, I would separate that in two different ways. Um, from a pure anatomy standpoint, you have your uh, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis. It's the same parts for everybody. It's, um, you're pretty much your hypothalamus is like your control center for your brain as far as what you receive from a sensory standpoint. That's what you hear. That's what you see. That's what you feel. If you have a physical injury, you know, all of that gets taken into place because you're going to send pain receptors to, to say, hey, I'm hurting over here. Um, that requires increased circulation, that requires uh, constriction of your arteries to send blood flow to that particular area as far as what is being stressed in that moment. Um, in regards to that access being tapped into every time, you, you experience the same uh, uh, pathway, whether it's a car accident that you just dodged or being in a more stressful, consistent situation um, in the military or in the ER or, you know, patrolling a, a, a school or, or an event of some kind that police officers experience. So that pathway is consistently being used. From that anatomy standpoint, there have been some studies that actually show folks with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and, and uh, you know, just consistent trauma that those areas of their brain are somewhat smaller in volume which speaks to the fact that if they've experienced those types of stressful environments over a long period of time, that it actually does then make that area of, the, uh, of your brain smaller or, or the response not as robust as it once was. So therein lies the, the, the actual anatomy pathophysiology uh, uh, 
pathway that we all have and and each individual kind of processes that differently and then there's a whole behavioral component to it as far as exposure and how you uh, handle it from a day-to-day -day basis depending on your profession this is great listening to it from a medical perspective you know we teach a overseas travel course for executives and and we basically break it down into a, a pretty simple graph of red, yellow, green, and talk about, you know, when you hit the ground in, in Yemen, you know, if you're in that mode of red, you're in full paranoia, right? And, and the opposite side of the spectrum, green is you're completely naive, nothing will ever happen to you. So we teach, we want you to be in yellow, you know, relaxed, head on a swivel, um, but you can't live in red for that long, right? And, and you're, you're touching on it and, and you know, from the, the medical perspective. Um, but right now, I think we're really seeing um, that, uh, you know, even globally, that the medical community has really become uh, a hero for everybody. You know, you're saving lives every day. You're helping people through this. Um, you know, you're counseling them. Um, all these, these perspectives as we're dealing with this pandemic. But in regards to heroes, I wanted to ask you, you know, kind of from a personal perspective, who would you say is your hero and why? I would say that my hero is my dad. Uh, he, he's always been, you know, this, this mammoth of a man that uh, I will always look up to uh, in, in many aspects. Um, you know, my dad is a guy that um, in a father-son basketball game is out here, you know, trying to get the MVP of the game uh, and, and not letting his son win. Uh, but, you know, just from an intellectual standpoint, from how he does with the family, the leader that he is, and really just the strive for excellence that he, that he, that he pressed on us. Um, at growing up as kids, you know, it, it was one of those things where he always was just very uh, uh, intentional in making sure that we were squared away and set up and, and we don't to not uh, put us in position to make any excuses, but do the best you can at what you have. And, and we're doing, he's doing the best as he could as a father. And, and that just effort overall is something I've really taken and, and still look up to to this day. That's great, doctor. And again, we're here with Dr. Kyle. Um, talk to me about what's going on in the brain during the different phases of, let's say, peace, stress, panic, um, and how the buildup, the climax uh, of situations lead to those phases and, and how they function. So, so the neurochemistry, um, as far as the brain and, and receptors concerned, you have a couple of different, um, you know, you have your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, both of which work as like levers, like gas brake, almost, if you will. So w during flight, which is, you know, your episodes of panic or nervousness or stress or anything like that, your sympathetic system is moving. It is pumping. It is saying, hey, brain, we got to get to this processing area to kind of process what's coming in. I want my, my, my words to be straight. I want my body to function. So if I have to run, I need to make sure all my big muscle groups have plenty of blood flow to go there. So your sodium, potassium, chloride, protein levels, all of which are involved in very different ways, <clears throat> whether it's neurologically or uh, cellularly at the muscular level, because those are involved in contractions. You know, I don't know as far as running and things like that, you get the pickle juice or, or sodium salt tablets or things like that. There's a reason that those are being given because that's helpful as far as to prevent cramping going on. It's a very similar dynamic in your brain. 
um, except the neuroreceptors, they just use some different um, uh, hormones and some different uh, uh, electrolytes in, in a different way as opposed to a skeletal muscle. But that's what's going on in that flight type of response. In regards to when you're, when you're relaxed and calm and everything, same receptors, same, same type of communication, but not nearly as much uh, hormonal uh, stimulation that goes into that. So if you look at it on a, on a board, and I know it's a podcast, so there's no drawing, and I'm a bit of a read-write learner, so it's kind of easier for me to write it and draw it. But if you have, uh, it's called the synapse, pretty much, where two nerve endings are together, and what happens during communication is that the, the electrolytes and hormones are in that synapse, and that's the communication. That's, that's what's going. It's a whole lot of hormones and, and electrolytes and things in between that synapse when you're, in, when you're in flight mode and when you're relaxed. It's, they're still in there. You're still processing, but just not nearly as much, not nearly as robust because you're not in that type of stressful scenario. So let's talk about this for a second. So relating to um, maybe somebody who – it gets laid off and, and they're sitting at home, they're watching all the COVID-19 news. They're watching everything play out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, well, talk me through the average person um, and then maybe the, the more chronically stressed individual um, with high blood pressure. Talk me through you know, the average person and then the not so average person and, and how that would play out. So, an average person that's dealing with you know, recent COVID-19, as you mentioned, uh, potentially might have gotten laid off or postponed from their, from their job for a moment. They're dealing with a lot of um, just what we, one would call an acute anxiety type episode, potentially, which, in which case there's a whole lot of what ifs going on in their minds. And they are trying to then process a lot of the what ifs. You know, what, what am I going to am I going to just consistently send out my resume? Are the people that I'm sending my resume out to, are they at work? are you know when we go back am i going to go back to the job that i was at or are they just going to look at it and say we're scaling down or is the business overall closed so your average person has that that's a very acute type of scenario now we're getting to from a pure timeline standpoint you know the 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 line of demarcation from acute stress to potential post uh traumatic stress is about a month so so it, it within that month you try to curtail you try to treat you try to talk about it work it through because if it's a month and it's in that acute setting well maybe you can reset back to zero you know you get laid off okay fine it's been a couple weeks i got an interview on week three i'm 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 chipping away at it okay boom week five i got a job I've, i've addressed my acute unemployment scenario situation you get to month two month three month four still unemployed unemployment checks now now those other stresses are really starting to weigh in on your mortgage kids family, a lot of other, uh, you know, financial stresses, which are attached to your, to, to your employment. Um, that stress is a little bit different from the type of stress that folks with that have diabetes, high blood pressure, um, and some other things. Those are more physiological stressors that from an anatomy standpoint, really just consistently work on your body. And, and you could have a job and have horrible blood pressure and having that job is not helping that at all. In which case, you know, your, the, the constriction of your arteries, the, the work that your heart has to do from a pure muscular standpoint, what it does to your kidneys and your other organs from a pure circulatory standpoint, that's more of a chronic issue that if you don't address it, that's going to have long-term bad health effects because um, of, of what it's doing to your body from an anatomy standpoint, 
not so much the emotional standpoint that would be in that more acute versus post kind of uh, stress disorder as far as um, employment and, and um, uh, dealing with COVID specifically. Thanks, Dr. Kyle. Very interesting. Um, you know, I think you've talked a little bit about short and long-term stress. Can we get numb to stress? You know, I think about um, on the, you know, on the terrorism side of things, which is what I spent most of my career in, there's this concept right now amongst psychiatrists that, you know, every, everyone's asking, you know, how can someone, you know, join ISIS and, um, uh, you know, be comfortable with the barbaric things that they're doing or that they were doing. Um, and there's this concept now of secondary psychopathy. And we know that as far as psychopaths, the uh, genetically, it's a very small percentage, one to two percent of the population. But they're saying that um, as uh, a recruit is watching videos of beheadings and things like that, eventually they become numb to it. And so they're they're saying you don't you don't have the trait of um, being a psychopath, but you reach a state of being a psychopath, which are calling secondary psychopathy. As far as stress, and it sounds like a very complex. Complex um, um, topic, obviously, talking to you about this short, long term, and and how it impacts us, and everyone has a kind of a different tolerance. But can we become numb to stress, where uh, it's just kind of a, a new normal for us? So the ability to become numb to stress is definitely a, a, a large topic. But I, uh, to, to the point of seeing something more traumatic, there, there, there's a couple different ways to go, go about it. One is that the more exposure that you get to a particular type of environment, the less sensitized you will be. And, and unfortunately, the, that's a treatment method <laughs> of a lot of things too. You know, if you're, if you're having the same recurring dream over and over again, you know, you try to relive that dream while you're conscious and up so you're not that stressed out during the dream at night. So it does work kind of both ways in that sense. Now, when you mention numbness, that to me is more of a okay if you're if you're numb to very traumatic instances as far as beheadings and, and war trauma and and just death in that in that uh scenario you put yourself in a position to really be numb to a lot of other things which is why that is a very unhealthy way to be consistently desensitized so when you, if you don't feel that you're not going to feel brotherhood you're not going to feel compassion you're not going to feel it really even you're not even going to really probably even get to anger and hatred to be honest with you if you're if you're all the way that far gone not to mention what to the point of not being a, a, a psychopath really you you don't have a lot of direction if you get that far um in, in regards to your you know your own will what you want to do how you want to go about your business because you don't have those other emotions that they're tugging on you saying hey you know this isn't good this isn't bad you know why you know not even to, to think to ask the question as to why we're doing things so yes you can become desensitized to it um sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad but that overstimulus is definitely um a thing as far as becoming numb to it yes it can happen but the goal is uh is that you don't want to become numb to that so much to particular traumas because then it'll really affect your your whole life in, in so many different ways that's really, really interesting, uh, Dr. Kyle. I appreciate that. Can you, can you dive into talking about, because we, we've covered a lot of things here, but talk about the impacts 
of stress on, on the body. Um, so let's say we have a perfectly healthy individual. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I understand, you know, uh, onset medical issues with folks and things like that. And how, but let's talk perfectly healthy. Um, a lot of folks, a lot of my friends can't go to the gym right now. <laughs> perfectly healthy folks. And some of them, the gym is their way of managing uh, both physical and mental stress. And I know of a few people right now, one of them on the law enforcement side specifically, who who's having a very hard time because he can't, you know, he's trying to do everything he can at home, but, you know, it's just the, the act of going to the gym, right? The act of getting in his truck at 5 a.m. before his shift to go to the gym, right? It's all part of his mental decompression. And he called me the other day and he says, I, I, I've, I'm losing weight. Like I'm losing weight. I can't eat. I'm super stressed. Can, can we talk about that? Can we talk about, um, and then can you cover coping mechanisms and, and mental preparation? So for those that have lost their routine uh, and, and I'm one of them, it's been interesting that that's the story that you mentioned as far as getting up girl, going to the gym before work. Cause I do that on a daily basis for the exact same reason. Uh, it is my hour of peace. It is it is my everything to get up, to get in the truck, to go get to the gym. You see the same people in there every morning. It's a it's a whole process. The fact that that's now taken away from us in this particular environment, we really just it's a, it's that much more of an effort to try to build a, a different routine to to get that same effect. You know, the, everybody's different, and everybody has their own ways of going about stuff. But for those who, who, who are perfectly healthy, who use physical uh, activity and, and, and whether you're throwing weights around in the gym or you just get on the treadmill and your mind goes, gets to wander for an hour while you walk or run or, or something along those lines, you know, watching the news while you're on the elliptical or whatever. If that's how you get rid of stress, we, you just got to get some downloaded videos. I know Nike did the um, Nike Plus or the Nike app. Uh, I think they, they, they let you get on for free premium so you can do the in-home work exercises uh, and things like that. It's really important that, that you try to really replace that as best as possible. A lot of my neighbors ironically go to the same gym as me, and I don't like to talk to anybody really when I go to the gym. Like I said, it's my moment of peace. So when I saw a couple of neighbors, they were like, because I'm now running around my neighborhood to get my exercise. And they're like, oh my gosh, yeah, you, you got to get it. I'm like, yes, I'm going crazy not going to the gym. In regards to the losing weight, you know, the, the unfortunate part about that is that that's, that's definitely a level of stress. You know, your, your um, GI tract and your small and large intestine, the ways in which you absorb nutrients and everything else. You know, you've heard of stress eating, I'm sure, where you gain a ton of weight because you just, you don't have anything to do. So you just sit there and snack all day. And those are the folks that gain weight. But sometimes um, it works the other way around. And, and still the same level of unhealthiness, I might add. If you're losing weight because you're so stressed, what happens is getting back to circulation and neurotransmitters and everything else, your, your gut just doesn't get enough circulation to really, absorb, to, to really absorb because you're so stressed about everything else. So taking that, that blood supply, taking those neurotransmitters, taking that focus from a pathophysiologic standpoint, that's not able to focus or not slowing down enough to have a meal, to absorb it appropriately. The caloric intake has probably been decreased substantially, not to mention the fact that um, you're still stressed about not being able to go about your day-to-day routine. Routines, once again, I'm one of them, routines lower stress levels. They, 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 they let you 
operate and move within a, in a, in a stress-free environment, sometimes, a lot of times, regardless of where you work, simply because you got that energy out. You got those, you got your blood pumping, you got your, your, your mind working and all those types of things that the workout gives you, not to mention the mental aspect of what the, the routine gave you. The routine says, hey, today's a regular day. Today's a good day. Today is, I'm able to go about my business regularly. So, so there's a number of different layers to it, but to the folks that are losing weight, that's why from, from a pathophysiologic standpoint. Um, you know, if you, if you all, Thanksgiving dinner, kind of a thing, it works in the opposite, where you eat and then you get on the couch and go to sleep during the football game. That's because there's so much blood supply to your stomach <laughs> that your body's just telling you, hey, we gotta shut it down for a couple hours here while, while I process all this food. On the flip side, if you're so stressed that you're not able to do that, that's why folks tend to lose weight because they're not absorbing as much calories as they previously were. Is there a way to understand the extent of stressful environments and what it has on, on mortality um, and, 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 I mean, the effects of your life over time? And so, so I mean, for example, do, do people in a more stressful career, is there data to show that, that they live longer, shorter? So there's, there's once again, a couple of different ways to go about that, but the main way is to start off this. So top reasons folks pass away is cardiovascular disease high blood pressure, high cholesterol, stroke, heart attack, aneurysm. That's the top reason people die. Not cancer, not, not gunshot wounds or anything else like that. With that being the top reason to your point of your question, it, are, there, are there studies that show, hey, this guy's been in this job for 25 years that was uber stressful. How much does that contribute to his passing from whatever type of uh, disease, whether it's a stroke, heart attack, or what may have you? There are studies uh, that show based on anatomy um, as far as, hey, this guy had uncontrolled blood pressure for 25 years and he, was, he looked healthy, his BMI was okay, stuff like that, but his blood pressure based on his medical record was uncontrolled for a substantial amount of time and we can do now. You can look at CT scans. I don't like the term, it's called, some folks tend to call them mini strokes. I'm not a fan of that because a stroke is a stroke and there's different ways to go about that. But you can see on a CT scan, when you've had uncontrolled blood pressure, areas of your brain that have not had good circulation for a while. And, and, and in that, that's, those, are the physical evidence, those are the physical evidence that you can see from an anatomic standpoint that says, hey, you, know, you got to kind of get this under control. And, 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 and um, those are reasons that contribute to folks passing away probably a little bit more prematurely than they should. Um, obesity is another way to kind of track that from a, from a pure objective standpoint. Um, what are your cholesterol levels and, 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 you know, angiograms necessarily taking a look at your heart from an, uh, from an invasive standpoint are not standard protocol, but one can guess that if you've been overweight, have high blood pressure, have high cholesterol for an extended period of time, if we did one, your arteries are probably clogged up on, at, at a relatively higher percentage than someone who's, who, who's not. And the longer, in the longer um, time in which you are in that unhealthy state, the more uh, severe your, 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 your decline can be from a kidney function standpoint, heart functioning standpoint, and then overall circulatory standpoint as well. Great, Dr. Kyle. Thanks for that. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about medications. You know, I think there's different spectrums, obviously, and you're seeing it every day. And I think the question is, you know, right now, you know, I'm stressed. What do I reach for? So some people reach for 
alcohol, right? Some people are reaching for um, kettlebells to work out, like you mentioned, right? There's different options. But I think that this is such a critical topic. We could probably do an entire show on, on medications. And I want to ask you specifically, um, because it's so dominant in the media right now as a, as a topic. Um, it, but first, can you talk a little bit about medications to deal with stress? Because I can just reach for my, my Zoloft, my, you know, my Prozac, whatever it may be. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And then second part of it is if, you, if you're open to it, talk a little bit about what you've seen or what you think about the, the potentially promising medications for COVID-19. Okay. So in regards to the many different medications that are used to treat stress, uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier as far as that synapse with the neurons and how they communicate and, 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 the, and the different hormones and uh, that, that go into um, just overall communication that your brain goes through. Whether it's an SSRI, which stands for serotonin, reuptake inhibitors or SNRI, which is serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Those are they're, they're what they sound like. The, the synapse is there and they prevent the reuptake of those hormones. Therefore, you get that communication for an extended period of time. So whether it is Zoloft or Prozac or Lexapro or Paxil or whatever the case may be, you tweak it, you find the right dosage because not the same medication works for everybody based on tolerance and, and um, the different side effects that one may feel. I mean, they, they, they change up the, the chemistry of the medications despite them being in the same class. They do change up the chemistries for each different one. Uh, and everybody's got to find that, that one to help them process better. There's some that lean more on the depression side, like your Prozacs and your Zoloft. But then there's ones that lean a little bit more on the anxiety side, like the Lexapros and Effectual, that as far as what you're trying to treat. The standard rule for any medication like that is to try it for at least you know, four to six weeks to give it a shot, because that's how long it takes to really kind of quote unquote work. And, and like anything else, kind of from a mood standpoint, more than likely, you're not the one that's, that, that's as the patient that's complaining about it. It's your spouse, it's your kids, it's your, it's your, it's your coworkers that say, hey, man, like you're, you're really tweaking over here. Like you're really stressed and, and, and you're not yourself. You know, you're a lot more irritable or what may have you. And those will be the same folks that say, hey, you know, this, what, what's changed? You know, do you, do you do something different? Like what's going on? So a lot of times your, your outward uh, behavior is a big telltale sign for those that, that do it. But to the point of the medications, how they work and why, that's the mechanism in which they do it. And, and really talking about it, nailing down your symptoms, nailing down if there is a particular stressful um, scenario or person or circumstance that you're in, those are all things that go into the overall treatment of any, anything with, as far as uh, stress and anxiety there. Uh, in regards to the couple promising medications that, that folks have uh, discussed in regards to COVID, as far as part of the medication treatment regimen, I, I'd like to just kind of go through stepwise the process and how fast potentially it works or how it's working anecdotally. Um, ER, ER colleague of mine um, pretty much wrote us this big letter that says, look, I've seen hundreds of patients like this. This is what we're seeing pretty much. And it's very similar to what you've heard kind of on the news and all that. But the long and short of it is you get exposed potentially and then about two to 11, which is about average on day five, as far as when you start to really experience symptoms, shortness of breath, fatigue, you don't want to eat, sometimes, you know, loss of smell is one of those symptoms. And then subsequently, you know, you get a chest x-ray, you run some tests, run some labs, the labs 
present a certain way, but then you just gonna start to go down the line. You know, the serial chest x-rays that they're doing, the unfortunate part about it is your lungs just look very, uh, like a bilateral pneumonia. And, and with that, the, the decline in breathing and the work of breathing just increases substantially. Um, that's where you get into the whole vents and, and, and uh, intubations and all of that. As far as, um, you know, around day 10 or day 11 is when you get that big, huge, robust uh, immune response if you are healthy, uh, called the cytokine release. And with that is where you get the problem, so to speak, because the thing that's trying to help you from your immune system standpoint also kind of starts to flood so much that you that your lung function overall decreases not to mention that during all of this your lungs as tissue does start to get some damage so so the the, the lungs are not uh, not only they're not working potentially but then there's also just the overall damage of the tissue itself which does which decreases the amount of surface area that's real important as far as breathing and oxygen exchange it, it, it's, it's decreasing and declining. Once again, increasing your work of breathing and everything else. And pretty much with that, once you kind of get to that area, that stage, that's where you start to get put on ventilators and you hear about all this different supportive care because your other organs will start to fail. If you can't exchange oxygen, therefore your, your, your blood supply that's, that's circulating throughout your body, is not able to deliver healthy new fresh oxygen to all the different parts of it. That includes your kidneys, that includes your heart, that includes your brain, that includes a lot of other things. And, and the way to look at, or at least the way I tend to look at the human body, it's kind of like a boat. You know, you can only take so many holes before, before you take on so much water before it's going to sink. And that's pretty much the, the type of uh, scenario that we're trying to prevent at all. Because the, the statistics as far as um, you know, once you get placed on event, you know, the, the, my colleague's saying, you know, 89% uh, or 81%, sorry, of people that get placed on event don't come off the vent. They just pass away from it, you know, because um, you, you really just, you want to prevent the, the, the getting put on events regard, uh, in the first place. Therein lies the potential for those hydroxychloroquines and azithromycins as medications to try to help prevent getting put on event at all. In the sense that that response, your 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 um, uh, your immune response with the cytokine uh, storm, as well as the potential pneumonia that you may get in conjunction with the COVID nineteen, that is how those medications would be used um, to improve your overall lung function because it's going to get at um, not only your immune response with the cytokine release, but then also treating any sort of bacterial pneumonia that's there. The reason it's somewhat controversial is because everybody that has COVID does not have pneumonia, uh, doesn't have a bacterial pneumonia, so it's not necessarily, okay, well, I gotta give everybody zithromycin, or, or the timing of it all hasn't uh, bore out that, okay, well, we, if we give hydroxychloroquine here, this is when we get all the results. And, and um, for me, if it were you know, any of my patients and you know, on the floor and stuff like that, everything's a case-by-case basis. But if you're a healthy individual that is starting to decline and I'm looking at your body work, I'm looking at your x-ray getting worse and worse. And, and there's, there's essentially kind of nothing but upside in my mind as far as that's concerned. I would probably use those. I, I, I would use those, see what the response is, because I already know me not doing any of those things where that's going. And that goes into every doctor's mentality when they're treating patients as far as what is going to be my benefit versus what is going to be my risk. Once again, 
this is not to say that these medications are preventative in any case, shape or form, because if you take them and you don't need them and you are healthy and just in your house and you're just thinking, Hey, I heard this drug is going to work. Let me just pop a few tabs every day. No, you're going to have detrimental effects because now you're taking something that doesn't need to happen. Kind of going back to your red, green, yellow scenario, like where you want to live uh, mentally and everything. That's really what the body tries to do. You know, homeostasis is a thing you want to stay in the middle. You don't want either spectrum uh, or either uh, opposite end of the spectrum. You don't want to do too much. You don't want to do too little. And in that, there's a timing of taking those particular medications that potentially could be beneficial. And that's where the, where the question and that's where the debate currently is. But if, it, but if, but if you're healthy and you're on the decline and, and um, there, there's really in that point, in that scenario, there would not be a whole lot but upside um, to try to prevent you from getting on the vent in the first place. I would definitely feel comfortable trying to see how that goes. And as a point of, 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 of just scientific collection as well, they are encouraging everybody that does want to, they want you to be part of whatever study they're in. So, so that, that even, even in that, the folks that, are, that have tried that, the folks that are saying they've come out of it, they more than likely signed some sort of, uh, not even waiver, but some sort of saying, say, hey, you know, we really want to study this, see if it works, stuff like that. And, and whether they did it or their family members, you know, power of attorneys and, what, and the like, they might have signed that um, to be part of that study so we, they can get that information. Yeah, that's, that's very, very informative, Dr. Kyle. Um, I, I have, uh, you know, I have this thought about the virus where I believe that, you know, there, there's all the geopolitical side of it and everything, which we could spend hours on the phone discussing. But when it comes to how the virus affects and attacks people, from a medical perspective. Can, can you just talk about that real quick? Because that was something that, um, that's been on my mind. I'm just curious, we talked a little bit about it the other day, but if you could just cover down in, in your mind how you feel the virus works and break that down from a medical perspective. Could you do that real quick? Mm -hmm. So the way the virus works, it, it, it's COVID-19 is a type of SARS virus. If everybody kind of remembers, you know, SARS from few years ago and all that viruses are not they're not bacteria they're just viruses and within that they replicate at, a, at an alarming rate and a lot of times our bodies can let it pass through because they're not going to replicate to a point of threshold to really start to cause symptoms and and in this particular case with covid they are they're, they're causing your your body to react and essentially overreact from an immune response standpoint, and, and in the trying to recover, you, you end up um, imp implicating your lungs a whole lot, is what, what it boils down to. You know, your immune response, an immune, a, a solid immune response requires blood flow, inflammation, and all of those, both of those things are really um, in, in efforts to heal. That's, that's, you know, if you sprain your knee, if you, if you get a wound, it's red, it's swollen. That's part of the healing process. But the reason you go to the doctor, the reason you put ice on it, the reason you get medication for it is because in that healing response, you can actually, unfortunately, do a lot more damage in that, ter in, in that term. So that's what's happening with COVID is that it's, the virus is reaching a certain threshold to where it's, it's causing this response. And in that response, the lung tissue is getting damaged. And in that tissue damage standpoint that's why folks are having a lot of this pulmonary uh complications 
and treating it like acute respiratory distress and everything else that goes into it because you want to keep healthy lung function. And, and, and if you, you know, from a pure surface area standpoint, if you just chip away at it enough, well, then that's the, that, that's, that, that's kind of the ball game in that sense. And, and, and that's the process as far as how the virus is working. The, the, the virus itself, your body, you got to give it time to process and make antibodies and, and, and its own response to kind of get the virus out to where now your antibodies are really fighting the virus, but that takes a lot of time. That's why you want testing and, 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 and you really want, in a perfect scenario, you want everybody to say they have it or they have had it. And, and you want the herd immunity and a lot of other things to say, hey, you know, I got the antibodies, I'm, I'm good. Um, uh, and because my partner has the antibodies and, and my neighbor has the antibodies and my, and my family and all, all these people different have it. So now it's become, okay, well now we, we've got enough, not only individually, but as a community to say, okay, it's just COVID. Like that, that's kind of how you want it to be. But at this point, bodies, immune systems, communities have not had that robust antibody type of makeup yet. And that's all we're really doing when we get to the hospital. We're buying them time to get their own, we're not going to let their own immune system harm their lungs, but then we're buying them some time to really make those antibodies to say, okay, now our antibody level is a lot higher than the virus. And now we can start to kind of heal and recover from that point. Great. Thanks, Dr. Kyle. Yeah. To your point, um, I've got friends uh, that have worked in, you know, a career in law enforcement that worked in jails for their first five years. And, you know, they talk about, you know, after about a month working in a jail, they have this increased immunity system. I don't know if that's a myth or not, but they don't no. seem too, too sick. I'll let you, I'll let you chime in. Well, well, no, just different environments, you know, do it. I mean, and, and to the point of doctors, you know, going to work. I mean, our, our immune systems are relatively robust just because of the amount of exposure that we get. I remember in medical school, uh, you know, the pediatric rotation, I mean, it knocked us all down. I mean, they, they knocked us down like dominoes. It was not fun. I mean, and you thought you were going to be, you know, the one to get to one to get away, but <laughs> you weren't. It's just, and it's a 24 hour thing, but it's like, man, these kids are, they're, they're getting us all to the point of prisons and, 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 and other uh, environments where there's a large population, what you get is though is all that exposure, and then your immune system starts to you know download. Hey, this is that. This is this. This is that. And then it can make those antibodies, make those responses. That's why you know, unfortunately, a lot of pediatricians, a lot of my pediatricians colleagues, they tell their parent, the parents of the kids, like, look, let the kid play. You know, don't you don't have to hand sanitize everything because if you put them in a bubble when they're a kid, they're not, they're, you're not even challenging their immune system to do anything. So then when they go to public school at six, seven, eight, ten 10 years old, and all the other kids are perfectly fine running around and healthy, your kid can't even go in a sandbox without claiming sick because you put them in a, you put them in a, um, in a bubble for a certain amount of time that, that uh, is requiring, uh, you know, you didn't allow their immune system to, to, to really get all that knowledge and get all that, um, information to make a to make a proper response so they're behind the eight ball in regards to having a solid response and they get more substantially more sick you know currently there's a chickenpox vaccine um you know that all kids have and i'm some i'm kind of jealous but i also think it's a little rites of passage i think everybody should have the chickenpox i mean <laughs> you're gonna you know you get you get itchy all over you get the calamine lotion on i mean it's a 
it's a whole thing. And you had chicken pox parties and, and you know, oh, you got the chicken pox, Every, the whole block, everybody's going to get it at the same time. It's the same type of scenario. But what they were doing in that scenario was really getting everybody's immune system up to speed. Like, hey, guys, we got it. We need you to get it so you can get over it. So now your body's aware of it. And that's where we're at with COVID as far as, 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 far as how that goes. We're getting information, but the lag, it's the lag time and the speed in which the virus is affecting folks, which is why this is a little bit different. Than, than a lot of other things, because we're not having enough time for our bodies to really get that information to make those antibodies to then reinforce and attack it and let it, let it just go through like it does other viruses. Oh, great. Um, yeah, it's, there's something good about, um, I, I would say cathartic about, I scraped my knee and I'm okay, or getting... Yeah you know, punched in, in boxing training and you go, okay, I'm still okay after getting punched, you know, exactly. this immunity system. So let's talk about daily habits of people right now in quarantine. And we'll talk specifically about, you know, what are some good healthy habits that I can implement in my life? Cause people are living in quarantine. People are living in constant fear. You're seeing that uh, more than anybody, uh, potential grief, actual grief, uh, anxiety, all these things. What are some techniques, what are some habits that we can implement in our lives now to reduce some of this talking about? So to the point earlier of day-to-day uh, -day routines, and, and in this time of quarantine, I think that that's one of those things, a big habit to do and have. You know, you're at home all day, you know, eight, 10. I mean, if you have a long commute to work, probably even longer hours, you are now at home and you would have been doing something else. And for what it's worth, you know, you, regardless of your job, you're probably doing something for somebody else, you know, whether that's a computer processor or a physician or lawyer, or, you know, you got clients, you got spreadsheets, you have a number of different things that you're doing. And, and I think trying to get a routine at home will be helpful. Um, being in free fall, um, from a routine standpoint, doesn't help you. It doesn't, it doesn't empower you to consistently get something out of your day. Um, and unfortunately, just let your mind wander. Get leading to the what if, leading to fear, leading to, you know, where do I go for facts? And then the other thing is, what do I do, right? So it's like you have what, you, what, what you're hearing on the news and you have stuff and, um, and a quick anecdotal story, which I kind of found interesting from Southern California, we're used to earthquakes. Right. You know, you have an earthquake, room shakes, bed shakes. You might might have thought you dreamt it. And then you wake up on the news and you hear about the earthquake like that. While I was in medical school, uh, D.C. had a pretty big earthquake and it got all the way down to North Carolina and everybody was freaking out. They were like taking kids out of school and <laughs> I didn't understand. I'm like, guys, it's, it's an earthquake. Like, just go about your business. But in that, in that same scenario, it's like the what do you do part freaks people out. And, and what I would recommend folks do is really, um, if it's more, more worried about coronavirus uh, and, and do you have it, am I going to spread it, can I do this, can I do that, um, you know, really, CDC, World Health Organization websites, go there for that type of information. I would suggest not to necessarily watch the news 24 seven, because it is not while it's a ever evolving thing. It's not, um, you know, a car accident that's going to get cleaned up in, in, in a couple of hours, you know, it's going to be a lot of, uh, it's, it's going to be a relatively solid amount of time 
as far as how that information comes out and what the actual kind of steps are to improvement steps are to uh, getting to where um, you, you, you can start to feel good about, you know, stuff, you know, initially we had uh, nationally, we had a deadline or a timeline to try to put it on. They've extended the deadline. Um, but then the social distancing stuff and all you could say, if you, if you listen to the doctors that they interviewed, like, Hey, when is this going to stop? Like, what's the date? And they couldn't tell you a date. All they could tell you is, Hey, if, 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 if we do this, we may stop it earlier. If we don't, I can tell you how bad it's going to be. And, and, and the reason they were more confident of the, if we don't do anything, this is how bad it's going to get because we already know what our habits are. Now, are people really going to abide to what we're suggesting? Who knows? Who knew? Now it seems like as if that's been, that's paid off at this particular time, but that's the that's the to do part. So trying to find a routine, trying to find an improvement of yourself, whether it's reading a book, whether it's exercising at home, whether it's um, trying to uh, you know learn, learning something to cook or something along those lines, something to challenge yourself because I think that that's a big thing as well uh, that, that, that folks, um, I think undervalue a bit as far as, you know, kind of stretching themselves, stretching their minds, stretching their abilities. I think I would try to do something like that in these times of quarantine, really just to keep your sanity because, because once again, you know, being at home eight more hours a day than you're used to that, that can, that can weigh on you. You know, uh, one of the unfortunate incidences is, is that, you know, domestic violence is up and, 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 uh, depression is up, anxiety is up all for a number of different reasons. But once again, not having that routine day-to-day -day type stuff is definitely contributing to that. Absolutely. Um, and, and along those lines, I want to uh, just have you touch on the, the mental health part of this. You know, from our side, our company's made up of uh, former military law enforcement folks, and, and many of us have been through uh, isolation, captivity training, um, I got to actually uh, go through th some of that a few years ago in Africa. I was detained at a border for a while and, you know, it was, um, uh, it wasn't harrowing, but, you know, it brought back some of that muscle memory of what should I be doing as far as routine and, and, you know, keeping your mind healthy and things like that. So as we're in quarantine, uh, as you're talking about domestic violence, I know all the statistics are, are up, suicides are up, things like this. What can we do on the mental health side to keep ourselves healthy and keeping perspective? In keeping the mental health up to par, up, up to speed, I think you really have to hone in on what you know and what you don't. I think a lot of times to the point of depression, suicide rates, and anxiety is that that unknown with the additional level of fear that folks have is a really big contributing uh, factor in a lot of that. And, uh, and it definitely spikes folks' anxiety and depression and worsens that. So you don't have to you know, be the most well-versed person um, in particular as far as COVID goes to, to, to lower your stress levels. But when I say go with what you know, you know you're at home. You know you're breathing okay. You know that... Um, you know, your family's at home with you. You know that you are doing everything in your power to do your part community-wise and do your part individually to get past this from a COVID-19 standpoint. You know, you all um, uh, demographic as far as, you know, law enforcement and military have been, you know, trained and, and uh, experienced, like you mentioned, just isolation 
uh, types of scenarios. In those, I would imagine that a lot of that training from a desensitization standpoint that you all get and, and, and whether it's counting or, or you know, having pictures or, 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 or something that, to look to because stimulus matters. And, and that's what, that's what I, this isolation period is really, um, unfortunately, a lot of folks are learning the wrong way. Having conversations with folks, having um, uh, a meeting to go to, having um, an emotion that you get up for a presentation or down for a presentation. I mean, people that you didn't like at your job, you now kind of are yearning for that level of interaction. And in those periods of isolation, um, you, do, you have to try to gain uh, different ways to interact. I know Zoom, I've been on so many Zoom calls with my family. I think we're all now uh, uh, very, avert, very well versed in uh, trying to get it. You know, some folks still don't know how to unmute themselves or mute themselves really. And, and, <laughs> and it's once again, and it's interaction and even that interaction, it's still not, no, it's not, I'm giving you a hug. It's not uh, cutting a birthday cake or things like that. But that level of interaction is substantially better than none. And, and I think, um, you know, with you all's group, um, experiencing all of the things that you experience from a traumatic standpoint, you know, trying to remain in the yellow and, and everything else, you just have to continue to trick your mind that you are being stimulated. And that's one of those things that really you have to do in, this, in, in periods of isolation because it's the stimulus to make sure that things are going on, going on time that uh, really give you that, that sanity that, 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 that is maintained. That's very good information, Doc. Kind of moving towards the end of the podcast here with Dr. Kyle, um, I, I got a question. Beyond what we're hearing in the media, what do you think you know, everybody should be doing? You know, washing their hands, PPE, masks at the stores, What's your recommendation for listeners here, um, what they should be doing during this time and even after? So during the time, you definitely hear, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask outside. Uh, um, for medical professionals, you have PPE, but then for just general ongoing, you know, you want to wear a mask. Cover your mouth when you're sneezing and coughing, and then, you know, you're hearing droplet precautions and all sorts of things as far as how to look, not pre uh, to prevent the spread of the virus. In addition to that, I would just try to make that as normal as possible, um, the, those, those activities. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a forever bubble type scenario where we are just going to now start greeting people with elbow bumps and, and wearing masks where we're, you know, we now have to have just, you know, uh, iPhone's going to have to update their, their, their facial recognition because now we're, they're only going to get to see our eyes. I don't, I don't think we're going there. <laughs> um, so I do think that there's going to be a certain level of normalcy there, but I think that just what, what this has done is really bring about more community awareness that it's not just your health, it's everybody else's. And, and in that, um, just do your part and, and take care of yourself. Really. I, I um, you know, washing your hands, it sounds simple, but clearly, you know, that that's been ramped up as a country, <laughs> um, you know, covering, you know, cover, using your arm to cover your mouth when you sneeze and cough, that's been ramped up. Um, knowledge is, 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 is important as well. You know, as far as whether it's an allergy, you know, establishing care with a doctor and all those uh, things to kind of get good information. Um, I think that should that, that should uh, be a lesson in all of this as well. But no, I don't think that there's a whole lot more from a from a, you know, do I need to get gowns or do I need to get gloves or do I need to consistently wear latex gloves or anything else that 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 folks should be doing? 
um, because it, I think this is also another lesson that a little bit goes a long way as long as a lot of people are doing it. And, and with that, that's what um, going forward would probably look like. Great. Uh, yeah, as we're wrapping up here, Dr. Kyle, is there any place that we can follow you on social media just to put that out to our listeners? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You can definitely follow me at v on Instagram and drkylev, uh, doc, or, I'm sorry, drkylevincent.com. Uh, and uh, my Facebook is drkylev as well. So uh, it's pretty consistent, drkylev in different ways. There's a dot uh, on the Instagram name and stuff, but that is uh, where I, where you all can follow me. I'm doing updates on coronavirus um, on a daily basis. I'll be doing a number of other things, um, you know, just talking about health in general overall. I'm into a lot of different stuff, um, you know, exercise and stress release and a lot of those types of things. So um, thank Yeah, you all can follow me there. Great. Oh, this has been fascinating. Uh, very insightful, Dr. Kyle. We really appreciate you uh, spending time with us today. Um, we know that you're treating patients every day and, and you really do bring a healthy perspective to this because uh, the media, uh, there's a lot of different angles that are, that are you know, over, overwhelming people. And um, so we appreciate your perspective. You're in the fight. As we say, you're in the knife fight every day and um, you're, you're you know, keeping your head above water, but you're also giving us good guidance to, to help us through this time. Well, we're going to wrap it up. We thank everyone for tuning in with us. Uh, we appreciate Dr. William Kyle Vincent for joining us today and talking about the, the actual physiology of stress and panic and how we can um, stay mentally healthy during this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, please tune in next time to the North Group Podcast and always uh, check out our website, tngdefense.com. listening to the North Group Podcast, where security refined by intelligence. If you have questions for us, they can be emailed to info at tngdefense.com or visit our website at www.tngdefense.com. Don't forget to subscribe and stay safe.